You're listening to a podcast from Grace Church in Salado, Texas. For more information and resources just like this, visit us online at gracesalado.com. Good morning, church. I'd like to invite you to join me in the reading from God's Word, beginning in chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 26, and continuing in chapter 6, 1 through 5. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. This is the word of the Lord. For those who were here last week, you might say, well, that looks exactly like the passage we read last week, which I would say that's exactly the passage we read last week. Last week, we uh, continuing our work through the great letter to the Galatian church. We looked, we began to look at four commands given in this text that Marilyn just read. Last week, we looked at the, the middle two commands, the, the two commands that, that Paul says are the outward-focused ministries that we should have, name, mainly to uh, restore one another and to carry one another's burdens. We talked about that last week. I'm glad to see that you are back, even though I warned you, uh, next this week, we'll be talking about the two commands where Paul says, okay, now I want you to focus on the inward ministry of your own life. And that's what we're going to look at today. We see these four commands and we see that two are for the pure, humble ministry to others and two of these are for the disciplined, I would propose, exercise of examining your own life, the inward work. So, for the sake of the only gospel, Paul writes to them. He says, here's how you keep in step with the Spirit. Verse 26, he begins. And here is the first command he gives and how to keep in step with the Spirit. Verse 26, command number one that we're looking at today is do not become conceited. Do not become conceited. Verse 26 it literally says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The word conceit here is kenodoxoi, which literally means vainglorious or empty of honor. So conceit or to be conceited is a deep insecurity. It's a perceived absence of honor or glory or being worthy of praise it's leads us to the constant and habitual proving our worth to other people so the conceited ones we puff ourselves up don't we like 
the puffer fish. Any of you own a puffer fish? Okay. The puffer fish, which was really made known to me through uh, the great uh, story of, what's the story, the fish, yeah, Finding Nemo, the puffer fish of that one, okay. Um, you know the puffer fish, what the puffer fish does as a defense mechanism when there are other intimidating fish or prey or others around them. The puffer fish whoop, puffs himself up really big as if to say, don't mess with me. Look how puffed up and big I am. You do not want to even broach the thought of taking me on. I'm puffed up makes us appear like something we're not, is what conceit does to us. Tim Keller refers to this as honor hunger. Constantly trying to get people to pay tribute to us, even though deep down we know that we probably do not deserve the praise of anyone. The conceited person in the church is the individual or the group of people that give their resume before they start the ministry or service, during their service to other people, and after their service. They're constantly telling the recipients and those who would hear, here's how blessed you should be to get me in your life helping you. This is a puffed up person. You're laughing because you probably know people like this. And you're laughing because maybe we're unaware that we are like this. Paul is saying here that our conceit, our vain glory, pokes at people. That's what he means when he says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another. It's the literal word is to challenge another person to a contest. This is immaturity at its grandest. Puffing yourself up and then doing it so that you can poke at someone else, tearing them down. Don't we see this in athletes all the time, right? Go to any pregame, professional college, youth sporting event. There's this idea that when competitors get after it, the pregame ritual, you'll see the uh, wide receivers out there without their pads on, their shirt tucked up, showing their full 12-pack ab, right? If there's such a thing. I, I've heard rumors. And so they've got their sleeves rolled up, and they're out there running routes they would never run. They're catching balls. No way that they would ever catch in the game. One-handed, doing this, showing the crowd, strutting their stuff. We see this in every – we see this in track. We see it in baseball. We see it in basketball. And then when the game is about to play, the puffer fishes out there begin to then start the jawing back and forth. The cornerback looks at the receiver, and because the cornerback who's supposed to guard the receiver feels puffed up, he starts poking at the receiver with his mouth. This is what Paul's saying. Let us not become conceited, poking at each other, flexing your religious muscles, showing people how much you know. Though this happens in the sports world, it should never, ever happen in the family of God. Paul explains that there's no place for this in the body of Christ. 
arriving through these doors or through the doors of your community group should be a people who deeply appreciate what it means to be saved by grace and only by grace. Not a people conceited, but a people who are quick to say, only by the grace of God am I saved. Not a people entering the buildings, entering the community groups, ready to complain about everything else, but a people humbly saying, if not be by the grace of God, where would I be? So command number one that he says, to keep in step with the Spirit, verse 25 of chapter 5, and verse 26 of chapter 5, he then says, let us not become conceited. Don't be puffed up, poking at others, causing other people to maybe envy you. We see another command, and, and um, you know, just to remind you, in case you weren't here last week, verses 1 and 2 are the commands that we have outwardly to other people. We did that last week, so we skip to verses 3 and 4, and we see the second command here. Instead of being conceited, puffing yourself up, you should examine yourself. Look with me in verse 3 of chapter 6. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And here's the command. Let each person examine his own work. When a churchgoer is unaware of his or her sins and struggles They're unaware of these things. It's like the out-of-touch parent watching their child play a sport, and they think that their child is the next Hall of Famer. Have you seen these parents? Maybe you've been one of these parents or grandparents. I have often wondered which is worse, the football dad at the Little League football games or the basketball mom's. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen the dad on the sideline thinking their little five foot two um, number 77 is the toughest and the baddest dude out there. And he yells at everybody else, you go get him, son. And at the slightest bit of stumbling of the opponent, uh, they, the dad is like, like a, 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 a peacock. You know, that's my boy. He made that kid trip over his shoelaces or whatever, you know. See the same thing on the basketball courts. These loud moms who thinks that their kid is the next LeBron James. And if anything happens to them, you breathe on them, you touch them, you sniff at them in any way. It's like, oh no, all injustice is it. But I think the worst are the soccer parents. How many of you have gotten the privilege to go to a select soccer game and stand on the sidelines with these people in Texas, in the United States, that think their child is the next Ronaldo. You look at him and go, you've lost your mind. The word fool comes to my mind. If anyone, Paul says, considers himself to be something when he's really nothing, he deceives himself. It's the same as those parents. When we think that we can accomplish better salvation, better works, more holiness in our own strength, we are deceiving ourselves. And Paul says, if anyone considers himself to be something when he's nothing, you're a fool. Deceiving yourselves. 
So the commands here, don't be conceited. Verse 4, examine yourself, I would say, is something that we must do habitually. I have found that in order to live a humble life, a life of meekness, the church, you know, the type of life that's humble and meek, that actually can do what we said last week, that can actually restore people, help people, encourage people, that type of church must give themselves to disciplined self-examination all the time. For me, I have to do this not only every day, but I try to make it a point that every week I pull back and I just sort of put myself under an exam table in a way. I can share more about that later, how I do it, but I want to share with you five reasons why this must be our habit as the church for this inward ministry of not to become conceited and examining ourselves. The first reason why this needs to be habit, so if you're taking notes, here's five things that I think are reasons why we need to do this. The first reason is because it is commanded and modeled all throughout Scripture. It's here and it's everywhere. To list all the Scriptures that call for us to humble ourselves before the Lord would take the rest of our month. There is an allegiance to God's sovereignty and His majesty that we must have that we can only respond with, woe is me. All throughout Scripture, we see the command to humble ourselves before the Lord. And that is only happening when we examine ourselves. We know the passages where Jesus said, don't look at the speck in your friend's eyes when you've got a plank in your eye. There must be, because the Bible says so, continual, habitual examination of our soul. A second reason why I believe this is so important is Christ, not only is it commanded and modeled throughout the Bible, but Christ actually demands that we do this. It was like, Jason, isn't that the same thing? Well, kind of, but I really wanted just to hone in on the expectations that Jesus, our Savior, says. So if we're going to follow in his steps, we need to value what he values. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. What I'm going to read to you might be shocking words to you who consider Jesus to be the most loving person who ever lived. And he is and was and No one spoke like Christ. No one gave the encouragement that Christ gave. No one built up like Jesus built up. But when it came to those who were arrogant, when it came to those whose arrogance and conceited lifestyle put burdens onto other people, he had no place for them. Look with me in chapter 23, and here at Matthew chapter 23, and here's what he says about those Pharisees. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds, to his disciples. So get this. He's speaking to the crowds who have been following him. And he's speaking specifically to those who are his disciples, those who are becoming like Christ. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, Do whatever they tell you and observe it, but 
Don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. Then he gives us a description of what their ministry is like. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and they put them on the people's shoulders. But they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love their place of honor at banquets. They, the front seats in the synagogues. They love the greetings in the marketplaces. And they love to be called rabbi by the people. These are some puffed up vicious. And we see what Jesus thinks of them. He goes on. I mean, it goes on for many, many verses about what he says to them. These are people who love the display. These are people when they enter the courtyard, they're like, look at how religious I am, which is poking at them. You're not like me. And then we skip on down to verse 25. He was speaking to the crowd. He was speaking to the disciples. He actually begins in verse 13 doing this, but in verse 25, listen to these words to these people. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees. First, clean the inside of the cup. That sounds like self-examination to me. First, clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. This is harsh. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to the people, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Every time I read that or think of that text, I remember that time in high school when I was at my friend's house and there were these cups that we were drinking out of and whatever, and I looked over and I saw one of the cups that I thought was my cup and it looked like my cup. It looked nice enough. It looked like something that I would, uh, without question, pick up and start to drink. And when I started to drink it, I looked down and it was actually the spit cup of my buddy Troy. Some of you don't know what that is. By the laughter, welcome to Central Texas. Most of you do know what that is. It's where he spit his Copenhagen into the cup. And I almost drank all of that. Because on the outside, it looked pretty good. But on the inside, it's filled with spit and dirt. That's what Jesus is describing. The puffed up person religious person you're puffing yourselves up you want to look this certain way we need to have self-examination because it's commanded and modeled and christ demands that we look at the inside before we even think about the outside the third reason why we must habitually commit to this inward ministry is for continual and lasting change in our lives another text you don't have to go there because we won't maybe have time to read the whole thing but in mark chapter 10 we have the story that you might be familiar with of the rich young ruler 
I'll go ahead and read it. Chapter 10 of Mark, verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, this is Jesus, it says that a man ran up. He knelt down before him. He asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That sounds humble, doesn't it? What must I do to get from here to there? Jesus replies, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commands. Don't murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witnesses. Do not defraud and honor your father and your mother. The man said, teacher, I have kept all of these since my youth. Kind of see what's going on there. He comes kneeling. He knows well and good how good his behavior has been. In a sense, he's coming to Jesus saying, okay, now it's time for him to recognize my worth. Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him. That's so important. Because I really believe through the weight of examining ourselves, it can be hard. It can be painful to see what's in there. We need to understand that Jesus looked at this man and loved him. Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand. He went away grieving because he had many possessions. This man was thinking he was changing. This man was thinking he was doing everything that he could within his power. In fact, he was behaving well. But for continual, lasting change, he wasn't willing to go all deep within and all out for Christ. He was not wanting Jesus to dig deeper. He was not wanting to go deeper. So one of the reasons we must examine ourselves habitually is so that we won't be like the rich young ruler, going through life behaving well, but really sad because we're not going all in. Another reason why we must do this habitually is for community and for church health. Let us remember how Paul begins this in verse 26 of chapter 5. He says, let us not be conceited. Can you imagine a community of faith that is a place that is safe because you know everybody in that room relies on the grace of God, not on their knowledge or their behavior of the week. Can you imagine a congregation that you get to walk through the doors and you know everybody inside that door, when we start to sing Amazing Grace, everybody there feels it because they know that they know that they know if it wasn't for the grace of God, they'd have nothing. Can you imagine a church where the people, the members, Live in repentance. Live in repentance. Live daily saying, I don't want to go there. I want to only go here with Christ. 
and walks in freedom because their life is gloriously centered on the gruesome work of Christ on the cross. Oh, church of grace, may we never brag, ever brag about who attends this church. In order for this church to be a healthy, vibrant church body, we must never get over the work of the cross. We must get over ourselves every Sunday. And we must come in and say, I cannot believe that He saved me. I mean, we believe it. (laughs) We believe that He saved us, but I can't believe that He was... You know what I'm saying there, right? Like, I can't get over that He saved me. Imagine a church that healthy. A church that didn't brag on their programs or their way of doing things. Paul's writing to the Galatians and he says, for the sake of church health, before you begin to restore someone, before you begin to carry one another's burden, let us first make sure we're not puffed up fishes. It's commanded, modeled, Christ demands it. It brings continual, lasting change and for the sake of our health of our church we should examine our lives but there's a fifth reason we should do this people of grace the fifth reason why we must do this is the people of god is because a crushed and cursing world needs it what do you mean jason well The world acts like the world. Where are the people that act like Christ? Where are the people who act like saved people? The world needs this body of believers to examine their life. They're not going to do it. They may throw stones at you. But where in the world is the true light in the dark places? Oh, what happens when a church is unhealthy and arrogant? They don't examine themselves. They don't humbly live out the grace of God that's been extended to them. They will fail to keep in step with the Spirit. They will become pompous. They will be self-promoting. They will brag about their displays about their programs, about their music, about their personalities on their stage. All of this is conceited self-promotion and it will only provoke a world who's already hurting, who's already crushed. The world's not impressed. They don't need that. For years... I'm just going to, I don't know how this will go. For years I've struggled um, with a Baptist identity. I grew up in a very large Baptist church that if it was not for that group of people, I don't know how the discipleship in my family would have gone I'm so grateful for the people in my lives from that church. 
I feel so blessed by their work, but since I was earliest as a child, what I remember about the denomination, and I know this is incomplete, I know this isn't fair, but this is just my reality growing up. My whole life, I'm 47, been Baptist except for two years of my life. The mantra seems to have always been, we are the best. Look how big we are. I remember hearing when I was in seminary, when all the Southern Baptist leaders would get together, there would be this decision made. We will boycott Disney. I was like, wait, wait, I like a lot. I just, you know, wait, what, nobody ran that by me. We will reach these people. We're going to do this. We're all this big thing. But reality, the, the beauty of being Southern Baptist is the autonomy of the local church. And we don't have a pope. We don't have a priest. We believe in the priesthood of the believer. Like This church can do whatever this church feels led to do. But yet, there is this attitude, denominational-wide, that this world would not be as good as it is without the Southern Baptists. I remember attending the state convention. It was my first one, and it was my last one. In, in 2000, thousands of people filled the room. If you remember that convention, for those of you who have a history with the denomination, that was the one where the state split. Okay, I was there, thousands of people there, Maybe 2% of the people in that, those rooms were under the age of 35. I was one of those, and I remember thinking, there's a lot of puffed-up fishes here. And it broke my heart because I thought, this is, the, this is what we're giving the world? I mean, this? What's going on? We've lost our minds. We're focusing on the wrong things. Wake up. We brag about our influence in politics. Like that's something to lead people to. Really? Foolish. We brag about our worldwide efforts. Even our really amazing work and missions comes across so much like, look at us. Look what we're doing that nobody else is doing. Look at our great seminaries. Look at our famous personalities. The world is better because of us. And that sort of attention and fame is not handled well by people um, and denominational leaders and where I'm going with all this. This last week or last couple weeks, you may be aware, if you're not aware, I'll make you aware right now, that San Antonio Express, Houston Chronicle reporters have gotten together and they did a report, fact-finding, that since 1998, there have been 700 cover-ups of abused people in Southern Baptist churches. 700 victims. There, I forget what the number is. Y'all might remember this. How many... Um, Pastors and youth pastors have been um, accused and indicted for inappropriate and let's forget the word inappropriate, that waters it down, flat out abuse that either it got dismissed in court or they pled a deal 
People of Grace, when I read the report this last week, and it, it came out in three parts, you can Google it and search it. I just, I just want to say, this is the words we're going to get to next week. You, you reap what you sow. You're going to sow. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Well, guess what? They're looking now. People of grace, this should break our hearts. This should cause us to say we better begin the work of examining ourselves individually because the world is crushed. The world is cursing. The world is carousing. There must be a people out there that are willing just to put themselves before God and say, I don't deserve grace, but He gives it, and that's all I have to give to y'all. One of my friends used to tell me and still would say it to this day, for revival to begin in a city, you need to draw a circle around yourself and every day say, God, please change everything in that circle. That's why we do what we do on Sunday mornings when we start our prayer time. God, yeah, we, we pray for Thailand. Yes, we pray for the Summit Church. But, oh, God, bring ourselves under your examination. Do a work right here. It is commanded. It is demanded. It is helpful and healthy for the church. It is good for a broken community. If that's all true, then why don't we do it? What are the hindrances? I'll close with some of this. One of the hindrances to this inward ministry in our, in our heart is, well, as you would guess, our conceit, our arrogance. It's like we say, well, we really don't need it. Well, yeah, those Southern Baptist Convention leaders, they need it, but not us here in Salado. I mean, we're just little Salado. No, who comes to this church? I mean, we don't, we're not, yeah, no, that's the problem. We don't do it because we don't think we need it. The prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? And the Lord saying this actually through Jeremiah. I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart. We all need it. One hindrance to this inward ministry is, is conceit and arrogance. Another hindrance to this inward ministry is busyness. When we're too busy, we're saying, I don't value this work. I don't value the inner ministry to myself. I don't have time for this. There's too much to do. I got to get busy to save people. <laughs> I got to get busy with the committees or the thing to plant and to do. We got to get busy. We got to get busy. I want to remind you the warning don't be conceited. You don't save anybody. God saves people. We need to stop and be still and recognize who sits on the throne. And we must come, partly let the rich young ruler, bowing, but actually asking, Oh God, am I too busy? Examine me. Clean out the inside of the cup. A third reason we don't do this is because of fear. We think it's unsafe. It's like saying we don't really trust it. I get that. If we begin to show vulnerability here, then wow, we really laid 
something out open for people to make fun of and mock us, and that can be very scary. God might lead, I know I've thought this, God might lead me to confess things that others won't understand, and I'll lose my job. Now that, that could be scary if, if you're part of my family. Jason says, shh, don't say that. Oh, no, no, no. I need to be the lead confessor in this whole church. You don't want a pastor that won't confess his sins. It's scary. I get it. It's scary and it sounds risky, but there is something much more dangerous. Standing before the Lord saying, look at all that I've done. And him saying to you, depart from me. I don't know you. We must be vulnerable and habitually come before the Lord. Um, for time's sake, let me just get to the fourth one. Another reason we may not do it is because we're in bondage to sin. That's like saying, I can't see my way out. I'm just too entrenched and grabbed hold of by the sin. Some are here this morning and you're, you've been wounded in your life. You've been hurt. And from that wounded life, you are wounding other people. You know the phrase, hurting people hurt people. That's what's been going on in your life. You've not examined yourself because you're just so caught up in your own struggles. My dear friends, I want you to hear the invitation from Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary. Lay it down. Confess it. The last thing I want to say about this before we move to a time of confession let us not become conceited. Your conceit just pokes at other people. You who are spiritual, restore those who are broken, who are caught up in sin. What that means, that's last week's sermon. What that means is if you see people confessing things, you who are spiritual, maybe come up beside them. Say, I'm here with you. I love you. Don't be ashamed. We're in this together. I'll carry this with you. And then as you leave, you go and examine even yourself. Those are the four commands as we see through this text. The Judaizers were coming in and they were saying, you got to do more, you got to do more. They were puffing themselves up and they were saying, you got to do more. And Paul is saying, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. No. You need to examine yourself, church. You need to make sure that you're relying on the only gospel that Jesus came to save you. I got, I got bad news and I got good news for you. The bad news is you can't fix yourself. The bad news is what can wash away our sins? Nothing. But there's good news. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Here's what I want us to do as we close our time. Praise team's going to come up in a minute. They're going to lead us to a song of rejoicing and celebration eventually. But, but as they come up, as we pray, I want to just invite you to right here, right now, put yourself before the Lord and say, God, would you change everything in this circle? Maybe you want to come and just kneel down 
we haven't done that in a while. Maybe you just want to come up here these steps and like we did at night of prayer the other day, and just lay it down and say, God, I'm, I'm sorry. I've been messed up and I, I want to let this go. Maybe you need to go to somebody and ask them to help you. Maybe you need to confess something to someone. But we're just going to be quiet and be still. And we're just going to ask the Lord to examine us. I'll lead us through that through prayer. Let's pray. For the denomination, God, it's, it's been embarrassing. But being embarrassed should be the least of our concerns. People have been hurt. The conceited arrogance in the church has wounded so many people. So God, I pray if there be any of us in this congregation who have wounded others, Lord, please, 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 God, bring it to our attention for the sake of those struggling let them share it and be free. Become whole. Remind them you've commanded it. Remind them you're demanding it. Remind them that there will never be a healthy church until we confess our sins before you. We must be a confessional church. So, God, as we bow ourselves to you, I just want to ask you, show me anything that I need to let go of today. Father, and show me anything that is keeping me from true joy and freedom. Oh God, we thank you for the mystery of the cross. We thank you that Jesus bore the agony and the pain of the things that we must confess, that we have confessed. We thank you that he drank the bitter cup that was reserved for us. We thank you that in a minute as we sing, that your blood has paid the price for our freedom. Oh God, may we from this point forward have confidence in your work on the cross 
that we would be confessional people. Use us, Lord. Speak to us and then use us to engage the world with that humility and dependence on you. Thank you.